I preached my first sermon when I was 16 years old. I spoke at my first state fellowship pastor's meeting when I was 20 years old. I thought, and most of the people around me thought, that 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 was a good thing. As a teenager who identified as someone who wanted to be a pastor someday, an aspiring minister, I guess you could say, I thought the more opportunities that I had to preach the Bible, the better. The problem was, I missed a really important passage in Scripture that doesn't quite teach that. If you have your Bible, go to James chapter 3. If you don't have a copy of God's Word with you, we'll have it on the screen. James chapter 3, and we're going to begin by just reading verses 1 and 2. And during the course of the sermon, we'll be looking at the first 12 verses. James writes, My brethren, be not many masters knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. For in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man, and able also to bridle the whole body. Today we're going to be talking about this. When you open your mouth. When you open your mouth. It seems that some of the early churches looked up to the teachers and the preachers, especially the apostles, so much that they wanted to generate as many of them as they could. There was something similar happening, you remember, in the church of Corinth. Or if you don't remember, there was a a problem in Corinth with celebrity pastors. The heroes of the day were people like Apollos, and Peter, and Paul. The, the, the Christians in Corinth thought that these were the ultimate Christians because they were always speaking about the Bible. Paul corrected them for their misunderstanding, and James seems to correct a similar misunderstanding here. The, the, the churches that James is addressing that would have read this letter or book uh, they, they were, had gotten to the point where they were trying to put out as many preachers and teachers as possible. So, so James tells them a word that can also mean teachers is here translated masters. He tells them somewhat maybe surprisingly, brothers, don't become a bunch of teachers. That was probably odd for them to hear. The same way it's, it's odd for conservative Christians to hear it today. Now sometimes... If you want to understand whether or not a text has been neglected, it's good to look at it and think, would the church today be any different if this was not in the Bible? And with James 3, 1 and 2, when I think about just conservative evangelicalism in general, I I don't think the church would be much different. And we have a logic that seems to make a lot of sense that goes like this. Bible, good. People who talk about the Bible, good. Producing as many people that talk about the Bible as possible. Good, right? So we have seminaries and Bible schools and institutes 
that we've started, and we want to get as many people going into Bible college as possible because we say, well, the more the better, right? James then says, hey, don't be a bunch of teachers. <laughs> now, there's something that the churches here missed, and James is going to explore what that is. There's, there's a, this underlying misunderstanding that led them to think the more people we have that are trained to teach and preach the Bible, the better. And, and here was part of their misunderstanding. We see it at the end of verse 1 and end of verse 2. James says something that they haven't been thinking of, that those that regularly teach God's word are judged by a stricter standard. When they have to give an account to God, they'll have a, a greater, a more severe judgment for how they've conducted themselves because they've been going around telling people what God says. And it turns out that's kind of a big deal, right? Right? Something that I had not at all thought of when I was a 16, 17-year-old want-to-be preacher. Now, of course, I know this can seem very hypocritical for me to be standing behind the pulpit telling people, the Bible says, don't be a bunch of teachers. Well, David, you're kind of a teacher. I know. I know. We shouldn't rush headlong into this. James is not teaching, and if we look at the rest of the New Testament, the New Testament doesn't teach it's bad to be a minister, or it's bad to be a preacher or a teacher, but the Bible does teach us this is not something to rush into, because those that rush into it as quickly as they can don't understand it and how dangerous it is. Not only is there a stricter judgment, but notice verse number two. James, who, who, by the way, is the brother of Jesus, puts it like this. In many things, we offend all. What does that mean? Uh, one pastor uh, paraphrased this this way. He said, as a preacher, we get it wrong nearly every time we open our mouths. Now, James says this. <laughs> it's a little bit scary, isn't it? We're claiming to talk for God and we can get it wrong every time we open our mouths. And James goes on to say in verse 2, if you find a teacher that never, never stumbles with his words, that never says anything incorrect, that's never even accidentally misleading, you have someone that's perfectly in control of their life. In other words, there's no one quite like that. This is serious stuff. Now, Verses 1 and 2 really just provide a context, kind of a launching pad for James to talk about something else. The people that James is writing to don't appreciate how big of a deal it is to become a teacher because they don't realize how easy it is to make mistakes and how serious of accounting of an accounting they will have before God. But there's something else James wants to get to, and he does so in verses 3 through 12. You see, this problem of wanting to have a bunch of teachers and preachers was really an indicator of, a, of another problem. The problem here that he's going to explore in verses 3 through 12 that was underneath their over-eagerness to have and produce a bunch of teachers was this. They failed to understand the spiritual significance of their speech. The metaphor that James uses is the tongue. They failed to understand just how powerful and how dangerous the tongue is. That was the underlying problem. That was the reason they said, let's have a bunch of teachers and preachers because they didn't realize the power of the tongue. They didn't realize what was happening when they opened their mouths. So that's what we're going to talk about 
today. Notice verse number three. Verse number three. Behold, we put bits in the horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn about their whole body. Behold also the ships, which, though they be so great and are driven of fierce winds, yet are they turned about with a very small helm, whithersoever the governor listeth. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasteth great things. Number one, James wants them to understand this, and we need to understand this as well. The tongue is powerful. It's powerful. There's a couple of examples that he uses of things that are very small and yet have this enormous power. The first is is the bit, the bit that they used on a horse. Now, horses are powerful animals. You can, they can carry 500 pounds and, and not flinch. The average horse weighs around 1,000 pounds. At least that's what the internet said. Now, at this church, a lot of people actually knows what a horse weighs, and I, I don't. But I hope that's right. I probably should ask one of you. It's, anyway, they weigh a lot, okay? I know that. They weigh more than me. Getting trampled by a horse can end your life. They're powerful. But there's something that's more powerful than the horse. And we know it's more powerful because it controls what the horse does. And that's the bit. Now the bit is very small. Yet whoever controls the bit controls the horse. It turns out that even though a bit is not a thousand pounds, and that even though a bit can't handle a 500 pound load, and even though a bit can't trample you to death, it can control the horse because it has a power the horse doesn't. Bits are small, but they're powerful. James uses another illustration. That is rudders on boats. When when James was near water, and he he would have been near water a lot because of where he lived, he would see large boats that would glide across the top of the water. Their boats are heavy. They're strong. They're powerful. The boats were controlled by very small rudders. You wouldn't see the rudder from the surface of the water. And as those boats would turn on the coast or or in a bay or near a dock, as those boats would turn, it would appear that the, the boat was really making all the moves, but it was someone controlling the helm. Whoever had control of the the rudder would move the boat. And and it is still that way today. Even cargo ships have rudders. Now a, a, a rudder blade on a cargo ship is about eighteen feet long. And you think, well, that's really big. Well, a cargo ship is 1,200 feet long. And when they're fully loaded, like all the ones that are sitting out in California with the supply chain issues, it's, it's a mess. They're 220,000 tons. I didn't say 220,000 pounds. 220,000 tons when they're full at capacity. And the rudder blade is only 18 feet long. And yet, and if you've seen it, it's incredible to watch them make these slow turns. Whoever controls the rudder will control the destination of 220,000 tons of cargo. The rudder is small in comparison to the size of the ship. And yet, and yet, it is enormously consequential for where the ship goes. You don't control the ship unless you control the rudder. Those are the examples he uses. But honestly, friends, do we even need those examples to know how powerful the tongue is? 
Even without thinking about a horse bit or a rudder blade on a cargo ship, we know from our own lives how much power is in our speech. Don't we? Think of how powerful words have shaped the course of your life. How they've led you to where they are today. Words like, will you marry me? And even if they said no, it still affected your life, right? But hopefully they said yes. Words like, you got the job. You've been accepted to our school. Words like, we're having a girl. They've accepted our offer. But then there's other powerful words, aren't there? I hate you. Have you said that? Or, or maybe even worse, have you heard that? We all have at some point. That's powerful, isn't it? It's a small thing. A two-ounce piece of mucous membrane, as Chuck Swindle calls it, in the mouth can help you utter the words, I hate you, and yet, and yet, how powerful it is. The toll that it takes. Words like, I don't love you anymore. Words like, you always, or maybe, you never. We say these things so quickly and so easily and with so little thought. It takes so little effort to utter those words. And yet, and yet, they're so powerful. The tongue is small. It's two ounces. And yet, it's powerful. But there's more. Notice the end of verse 5. He says it's a little member that boasts great things. And then the end of verse 5. How great a matter a little fire kindleth. And the tongue is a fire. A world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members. That it defileth the whole body. And setteth on fire the course of nature. And it is set on fire of hell. The tongue is not only powerful. It is also destructive. It is destructive. You see, our tongues are powerful, and while that can often be a good thing, a little bit of encouragement goes a long way. A little bit of loving speech goes a long way. While that can be a good thing, the power of our tongues can also be a terribly destructive thing. We think maybe when we think about the most powerful or destructive things we can imagine, we may think of a, 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 of a nuclear bomb, but even a nuke is deployed by someone using words. And without words, there's no missile. It was with the tongue that an old friend stabbed you in the back, wasn't it? It was with the tongue that your coworker kept you from that promotion that you wanted. It was with the tongue that you alienated your child that doesn't speak to you anymore. Or maybe your child alienated you. It was with the tongue that you sabotaged that relationship. You burned that bridge. And you didn't do it with gasoline and matches. You did it with words. And it's never been built again. It only takes a spark to set off a fire. And we have a lot of fires around here, don't we? They're dangerous. They're dangerous. Until I moved here, I had never gotten a fire warning on my phone. 
I didn't think about fire warnings as even being a part of the weather. And now I realized it's really consequential, not just for property and for travel, but even for the lives of the, the people in our community who are either paid or are volunteers to help us put them out. Fires start small. That's one thing that all wildfires have in common, isn't it? That they never start as a wildfire. Wildfires don't start with wildfires. They start small. It only takes a spark, especially when it's dry and, we, and we've not had any rain and the winds are really strong. It just takes a spark, like our speech. The, the tongue destroys families. It destroys corporate cultures. It destroys businesses. It destroys community trust. It destroys churches. But no matter what ends up getting burned down, it always starts small. The little fire leads to the great disaster. When, it's a, when you have a dry day in southwest Kansas, is there anyone in here who would give a, a Zippo lighter to one of your kids and say, hey, go play in the field? Would we do that? Now, if you've done that, please don't tell me because I'd probably have to report that or, or something. No, would you do that? Would you really give your kid a lighter when you have a, a day like, like we've been having where we don't have any rain and it's windy and it's dangerous? Would you give them a lighter and tell them to go play in a field? Of course you wouldn't do that. And yet, and yet, we do small destructive things with our speech all the time. A little bit of innuendo, a little bit of gossip, a small accusation, dropping a hint, throwing some shade, a small lie, a mischaracterization of somebody else, just a passing comment. We're flipping a lighter in the middle of a field and we don't even realize it, James says. It starts small and when the, fans, when the, the, the flames are fanned, it will cover acres. It will set on fire the whole course of nature. That is, our whole lives, our whole existence can be altered by a few small words. That's the destructiveness of the tongue. And this leads us to verses 7 and 8. The tongue is, the tongue is not only powerful, and destructive. But in verse 7 and 8, James says that it's untamable. Look, look at verse 7. For every kind of beast and of birds and of serpents and of things in the sea is tamed and hath been tamed of mankind, but the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. Human beings, have, by the way, have done amazing things with animals. They've done amazing things with animals. Uh, and a lot of them we can, we can train. Even some of the big scary ones, like lions and tigers, right? Now, every once in a while, something happens where they'll do something bad, and that's what you end up watching on YouTube at like 2 in the morning. We like to watch like the tiger attacks. You, you weirdo, why are you watching that? But anyway, the, the reason those things are kind of rare is because most of the time, these people can train like a lion or a tiger, and the crazy thing is they'll obey, like, you could take a lion, king of the jungle, right? And tell it what to do for a treat. You can go to SeaWorld and watch whales do tricks. You can go to SeaWorld and watch trainers. It's like they're talking to the dolphins, like they're their best friend. And the dolphins seem to like be talking back. It's 
weird and cool, and you kind of feel bad for the trainer because you wonder, do they have real friends? But they, but it, it, it's like it works. It, there's like some sort of relationship there. You could train dolphins. People train their dogs. They attempt to train their cats. I don't know if that's successful or not. Scientists have learned about our own brains by teaching rats to go through mazes and pull levers. Rats. But there's something we cannot tame. Our own tongue. The way we use speech. We can tell a lion what to do. We can tell a whale to jump and get everybody wet. Talk to dolphins. But we can't, at the end of the day, we're not very good at controlling our tongues, are we? The tongue is untamable, and that's why it's the one thing that we can never tame in our own power. It's unruly, James says, like an untamed animal. I remember when I was younger, I was terrified of dogs. And to be fair, we lived by a couple of really terrifying dogs. I didn't want to go outside. I didn't want to go to the park. I didn't t- want to take um, walks, uh, like walks in our neighborhood with my family. By the way, my mom's here today. I love you, mom. But I hated taking walks with my family in our neighborhood because there were just a couple dogs that really scared me. They, and you know what? They weren't tamed. And they were terrifying. They were unruly, right? You couldn't control them. They would just do weird stuff. But at least those could be tamed. But the tongue is not just unruly and untamed. The tongue in our own power can't be tamed. Like at all. And you know this because of the things that you have said this week. And perhaps the things that have been said to you. It's the animal we cannot tame. It's powerful. It's destructive. It's untamable. And there's one more thing we need to know. Look at verse number 9. Verse number 9. The tongue is also revealing. Verse 9, therewith, with the tongue, with our speech, we bless, bless we God, even the Father. And therewith curse we men, which are made after the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceedeth blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not so to be. That the fountain send forth at the same place sweet water and bitter. Can the fig tree, my brethren, bear olive berries, either of vine figs? So can no fountain both yield salt water and fresh? In verses 9 and 10, James notes that our speech can be hypocritical. He's working toward a larger point that the tongue reveals the heart. The tongue is revealing. I can imagine maybe James uh, traveling and visiting a, a first century church. Maybe he's there to speak. Maybe he's doing one of these seminars, like what was it like to be Jesus' brother? I mean, that would have been a cool thing to go to, right? So he's there, and when he's at this church, there's 30 or 40 people gathered into this, this little home, and they're all praising God. They're, doing, they're like giving testimonies and talking about how good God has been to them that week. Well, he, he enjoys the service, he leaves, and uh, right outside this house, uh, people are starting to talk to him. Hey, I, I know, James, you had to sit beside this guy. I'm sorry, here's, here's a, he's a real jerk. And if you want to know why, here's why. Here's what happened a couple months ago. And James is like, what? What? I just heard you talking about how good God is. And now you're, you come out of church and you're complaining about other people? 
You were the guy that just shared that testimony. You're the guy that talked about how good your life is because of God's grace. And now you get out and all you can do is complain about other people? Out of the same mouth, James says, we bless God. And then we curse the very people made in his image. It's hypocritical, but more than hypocritical, it's revealing, as he says in these illustrations that he gives. James isn't just venting. If you look at verses 11 and 12, he's not complaining about, uh, by the way, he's not complaining about fountains that have two kinds of water, because in reality, fountains don't have two kinds of water. It doesn't work like that. There's actually only one kind there. If a fountain gives out bitter water, it's corrupt. There's something in it. There's really no sweet water in the first place. So James is not telling them that sometimes they have good speech and sometimes they have bad speech. What he's telling them is that the bad speech gives away what's really inside the heart. No matter what good things you say. Now, you can can take a a, a tree or a plant producing olives and like tape figs to it. and Call it a fig tree. And there may be figs on it. But that fig didn't come from the tree, did it? No. It's fake. It's fake. The olives that actually grew out of the tree reveal what kind of tree it is. And our cursings, not just talking about like expletives when you hit your foot. I mean, don't do that, but that's not what I'm talking about. The way we talk negatively about other people, the way we use our tongue to start wildfires, the way we use our speech to destroy things. That reveals what's really on the heart. And just because you come to church or you come to connection groups and you say nice, spiritually sounding things, that doesn't change the fact that what's in your heart comes out when you're cursing other people. The tongue is revealing. James says it shouldn't be this way. (laughs) But it is this way because the tongue is the indicator of our heart. You see, we have sinful speech because we have sinful hearts. And by the way, this really gets down to the biblical doctrine of sin. The the Bible's teaching about sin is not that we are good people who do bad things or that we are neutral people who sometimes do good things and sometimes do bad things. Well, here's what the Bible teaches about sin. It's a lot worse than you probably thought. We do bad things because we want to do bad things. We sin, I know I've said this before, but the reason we sin, the reason you sin, the reason you've sinned this week, the reason you sin with your tongue is because you love it. You want to do it. You desire it. And what you say reveals what's in your heart. What you say reveals your desires. The reason you tore someone down this week, the reason some of you teenagers talked bad to your parents this week, it's because in your heart you wanted to talk that way. Because that is who you are. The reason that we were rude to our kids this week is because that's who we are. Because we wanted to. Our speech reveals our heart. And eventually, who we are will come out in our speech. So what exactly are we supposed to do then? I mean, this is obviously a problem. We... uh, We know that our tongue is powerful. We know it's destructive. What does James want us to do? Well, 
there's a wrong way to, to respond to this text. There's a dreadfully wrong way to respond to this text. You know what it is? It's to look at this and to come away and think, you know what? Man, that was such a convicting sermon. What a convicting passage of scripture. I need to work really, really hard at getting my tongue under control so I stop sinning in my speech. So that's what I'm going to do. I'm, I'm going I'm to work really, really hard at this, and I'm going to tame this thing. I'm going to get my speech under control so I, I don't sin with my mouth anymore. No, that, listen, that is not James' point. It's not James' point. Uh, Augustine has a commentary on James, and uh, in his day, people had the same idea. Augustine said that people could come to this text and read it and think, oh, I, taming the tongue is really hard. So I'm going to have to be really strong to do it. But is that what James says? Does, does James say no man can, came, can tame the tongue unless they try really, really hard? No, he says the tongue can no man tame. Period. Augustine says this misses the point. He says, I do not believe this is the meaning, the idea that we need to work really hard to get our speech under control. I do not believe this is the meaning. Instead, he, James, was determined to show the tongue cannot be tamed by anyone. He said this not in order that we should tolerate this evil, but in order that we should ask for divine grace to tame our tongue. Do you get that? James says, we don't, or Augustine says, you're not supposed to read James 3 and come away thinking, man, I'm going to do this. No, we come away from it thinking, man, I need God's help. Right? Isn't this the whole, the, the whole like, running theme of this book? James isn't telling people how to live a good life. He's telling people how to live out their faith. What is faith? It's dependence on God. It's trusting in him. It's, it's not trusting in, in ourselves. It's outsourcing our alliance to God. You can't get through life without trusting in him. And it's the same with taming your tongue. You can't do it. That's the good news. But God can. Augustine continues. He says, note the comparison with beasts. This is so good. The animal does not tame itself. A man is needed to tame the animal. And so God is needed to tame a man. James didn't write this so you would get up on Monday morning and think, I'm going to do better at my speech this week. James wrote this so you would come away feeling broken and empty and helpless and realize, I need God. I need God to help me tame what I cannot tame. I need God to stop me from starting this fire with my speech. I need God to help me not destroy everything with what I say. I can't do this on my own. I need him to help me. And so we turn to God. James has been pointing his readers to this the whole time, a life of depending on God's grace, not a life of self-reliance. And so here's the message of our text. To control our speech, we must attend to the heart. And to attend to the heart, we need God to attend to us. To control our speech, we must attend to the heart because the speech reveals the heart, remember? The water determines the fountain. The fruit determines the tree. And to attend to the heart, we need God to attend to us. You know, we came here this morning already, already realizing that our tongues were powerful because of how we've used them this week. So what do we do? What do we do? We ask God for wisdom. <laughs> 
We ask God for wisdom. When James tells them to, to, uh, to how to how to live while they're going through trials, he doesn't say, be really wise people, does he? No, if any of you wants wisdom, let him ask God. God is the one who liberally gives to all. Ask God for wisdom, he'll give to you. He doesn't tell him, if you want to get through a trial, be wise. He says, if you want to get through a trial, learn how to depend on God. And listen, because the tongue is powerful, because the tongue is incredibly destructive, and because ultimately the tongue is untamable, we need God's help to control it. We need God to work in our hearts. So our hearts will attend to our tongue. We need God to work in our hearts so that our speech will not be destructive, but as we've been talking about in our, in our midweek series, that our speech would be upbuilding and life-giving and mercy-giving. Our hearts determine our speech, so we need God to work in our hearts. Christian, will you ask God today to help you control what you cannot control? Will you ask him to tame the creature that you cannot tame? Now, if you're not a Christian, it's possible that you even have a little bit of trouble identifying with this. Because you may feel like your worst impulses, that whenever they just sort of arise in your heart, you kind of just have to act on them. You do things that make you feel guilty. You do things that make you feel bad. That could be why you're here today. uh, Because you're trying to feel better about yourself. And it almost feels like, man, when I have this desire, when I, when I have this impulse, when I have this urge, I, I just can't stop it. Paul says, there's things I know to do that are good, but I just can't do them. And the, the, the good things I want to do, I can't do. And the evil things I don't want to do, I just do them. Who will deliver me from this? And the answer is, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. If you're not a Christian or if you're thinking about becoming a Christian or you're curious about what the way of Jesus is, it's possible that you think outside of a commitment to Christ that you're living in freedom and if you come to Jesus, then you're going to be like in some sort of religious bondage. And you think, well, well David, I don't want to follow Christ because I, I want to hold on to my life. I want to do what I want to do. But listen, what you need to realize is you're not literally living in freedom. There are sinful urges and desires and temptations that you can't control because you don't have God in your life. You may think it's freedom, but listen, the freedom that you have outside of Jesus, all you get to choose is how, when, and where you're going to sin. Is that freedom? Really? I mean, is that really how you want to be free? No, here's the great irony of coming to Jesus, that a life of repenting and believing is actually the freest way to live. Because as we live a life of, as we walk on this path of repenting and believing and trusting Jesus, God helps us bring under control, under his authority, under his rule as our king. He helps subjugate the powers and the desires and the temptations that we cannot subjugate. Living in his kingdom, living under his authority, living back under the creator's rule, where we, were, where we belong, where we were created to thrive and desire. All of a sudden, slowly, day by day, God brings under his control the things that made us feel guilty and dirty and bad, those things that we could not control. If you want a life of freedom, 
then you're going to need to give up your life and follow Jesus. And, and if you are a Christian, I know this isn't a, uh, God controlling our speech isn't a one-time thing. It's a lifestyle that we have to press into. Where we get up every day and, and we, maybe we pray Psalm 1914 like we talked about on Wednesday. God, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable to you. Now, you may have prayed that on Wednesday night after the sermon, but listen, that, that mindset that we need God to help us in our speech, it's, it's got to become a pattern for life. You cannot tame your tongue, but God can. So come to him for help. Let's all, let's all stand. Our Father,